for me, you know, I think a lot of people have that pivotal moment in their life when they decide I can't stand it anymore or I've witnessed something atrocious or terrible to the point where I need to speak up. And for me, given my identities, given my history, given my genetic inheritance, I never really felt like that was ever a choice or kind of a aha epiphany moment. It was much more of a slow simmer, uh, you know, of sorts that led to the point where I gradually came to see that I couldn't just sit in myself in my identities, but actually act and be be an upstander and really uphold that. Um, my grandmother, Marilyn Schuler, was a huge human rights activist here in Idaho, director of the Idaho uh, Human Rights Commission for many years, for over 20 years, uh, co-founder of the Anne Frank Memorial here. And, you know, that was always just part of our family. That was part of the culture that we had in our in my father's side of the family and through that she was always just a point of inspiration anytime I'd come out to visit Idaho growing up you know grandma was always the center of it and being grandma human rights was always the center of our life and visitation here and so you know there was always inspiration around me and through that uh, you know I think there was always these glimmers of hope or you know points of inspiration for being and representing uh, being an upstander and personally being who I am with my identities, uh, different intersecting marginalized identities, there was always a need to survive and to simply find ways to get through day to day. And it wasn't that I ever faced really intense hardship directly, more so passive uh, you know, microaggressions or systemic marginalization that I just always assumed was the experience that everyone had. And that that was something that, it, you know, was, was part of being a child and part of being a teenager and a young adult. And really, in coming to reflect more on myself and starting my healing process in my mid-20s, I'm now 29, that was, I think, was kind of more of the pivotal point, I guess, if you would, for me to become more aware of myself and through that realized that I couldn't just sit in my oppression and that there was something that I could do and that I had to do. <laughs> and it really started, I would say, more or less three years ago uh, and more pivotably, more pivotally in the last about year and a half uh, in going through therapy and in particular moving here to Boise and really starting to see that there was so much that needed to be done, so much work that uh, needed to be engendered especially led by people who experience the the pain and the suffering that comes with being oppressed, uh, being repressed, being suppressed. And um, what I've come to see really in being an upstander is that beyond just my identities with my gender and my race, there's something very powerful to be said about the necessity of speaking up for others who perhaps don't share my identities and that there are so many other forms of oppression and so many aspects of marginalization uh, that obviously need supporters and need allies in and we all hold privileges that others don't have and it's incredibly important uh, in being an upstander in my opinion to have an empathetic point of view whether it's innate or whether it's something that's grown through experience or grown through one's own understanding and reading and education of the realities of being human. And I think often it's very easy to kind of 
sit in denial or surround ourselves with happiness or with a certain element of, you know, unrealistic uh, situations uh, or, or groups or people or settings that, you know, perhaps feel good and, and make us, you know, kind of experience a life that doesn't have that at the forefront, right? That being oppression, that being discrimination, that being hatred, uh, all, the, all the limiting factors that impact so many countless billions around our planet. And, you know, I think especially for white, cisgender, heterosexual people, able-bodied people, uh, people with good mental health, it's, it's very easy in our culture to put ourselves in a bubble and not have to confront that or to be a bystander, right? And uh, in particular, a place like Idaho, where we don't see marginalization really at the forefront the way that we do in other parts of the country and certainly elsewhere in the world, the amount of questioning of that and the amount of confrontation is limited. And it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just simply the reality of Idaho. It's simply the reality of a place like Boise too and other, other places throughout the state. And it's incredibly important that we do step out of our own bubbles. We step out of our own life experience and, and really sit in the fact that there is so much pain, so much work to be done still. And it's it's an invitation, I think more than anything else, for us to really right, step, step in discomfort. And I think everything that's been going on recently, obviously with the pandemic that's unfolding and all the all of the the the, the existing structures that have led to the health disparities and the economic disparities that we see in our country. And on top of that now, um, with the inflammation of Black Lives Matter and with all of the racial tensions that are arising as well, we're seeing that you know these things have existed for for generations, for decades, and our country's built on structures of racism and oppression and genocide. And nowadays, it's easy to forget about that, and we're we're able to say you know those that was my ancestors or that was you know something a hundred years ago that happened decades ago that happened, and that's not that's not me anymore. And I can just you know sit at home and watch Netflix and hang out with my friends and go into my job and come back. And, you know, our world now is very structured around not having to confront pain, avoiding pain, avoiding discomfort. Um, obviously not for everyone, but I'm, I'm saying for those that perhaps haven't had to confront this up until now. And so uh, all to say that I think that's that's really kind of what's behind what I believe to be the the roots of that awakening, right? I think awakening is a really powerful term that, is used often in you know spiritual communities, um, such as in the Buddhist community, and I think for something like becoming an upstander, being an upstander, myself included, it really does take that jolting, right? Kind of saying I've been asleep up until now, perhaps, or sitting in privilege, and it had to take something really pivotal or a series of events, such as you know I think what's been happening recently. I see a lot of people awakening up right now, and it's it's incredible. It's incredible to witness, and I hope that we're able to continue this wave and see, you know, greater justice, greater equity, greater uh, efforts towards diversity and inclusion that we haven't seen prior to the happenings of 2020. And, um, you know, we'll see what happens with this election, but so much is happening now. And I, I really am optimistic. And I certainly hope that others will join me and countless others who, you know, identify as upstanders or, or think that they've done things that are um, of, of the qualities of an upstander to, to join us and, and to really bring forth a better world. My name is Joni Tetsudo Schuler. I use they, them, theirs, she, her, hers pronouns. I am transgender non-binary. I am half Japanese, half Caucasian. I am plant-based. 
I am Buddhist. I am a third generation Idahoan. I am an advocate for change. I am an artist and I am a soon to be social worker. Looking for hope in a hopeless world. I'm searching for love in such hateful times. Looking for hope in a hopeless world. Hey, welcome to season two, episode two of the Wasmus Center podcast. In this episode, we'll be interviewing Joni Tetsudo Schuler. Oftentimes, the world can feel hopeless. The hope is there, and in this episode, Joni's going to tell us how to find it. This is Phil Roy's Hope in a Hopeless World. Finding hope in a hopeless world. Her eldest son stayed in school. Listen, the mama didn't drink a you. Yeah, every job he wants, he gets refused. It takes hope in a hopeless world. I'm looking for hope in a hopeless world. I'm searching for love in such hateful times. I'm looking for hope in a hopeless world. I'm trying to ease my mind, ease my mind. On the corner. Joni, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to. The Voices of Idaho with Dan Prinzing and Adam Thompson. Hey there. This season, we're focusing on being an upstander. Joni, in your story, I want to draw out a couple of points because you have this legacy of being an upstander. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Idaho is a better community because of the work that your grandmother devoted her career to, Mm -hmm. just her presence within the states in fighting and standing up to discrimination. But you're more than a legacy. We recognize you as the individual you are today in your own, what Mm -hmm. you are bringing to a new generation Mm -hmm. and carry that. The term you use, that awakening, Mm -hmm. that moment when a decision is made. We recognize in our upstander programming that to be an upstander is a choice. Mm -hmm. Just as much as being a bystander is a choice. As we will repeat often throughout this season, those that choose to be a bystander are actually complicit in the injustice for their silence. Mm -hmm. Their silence is an act of agreement with injustice. So in that awakening, where do you go next? Once you recognize, what's the first step? Mm. That's a really wonderful question, and there's no one answer, certainly. I just, you know, with the advent of the internet and now with the amount of information that we have, I don't think it's an excuse anymore for folks to say, I don't know where to go. I don't know where to start. I don't have any resources. And, you know, I think that was perhaps an impediment for a lot of people in the past. But whether you're in a remote community, whether you're somewhere urban, whether there is a lot of activism around you or not, there are so many opportunities now. And especially within my generation and and Gen Z now, you see the 
the utilization of social media, especially as a really incredible tool to, to educate, to inform and, you know, to, to act electronically. And I think in the pandemic, it's been really interesting too, as, as an activist in, in various spheres, I've seen a huge change, I think in, in people's motivation, certainly an ability to be more on the forefront, be an upstander, confront in times of need. And, and, and yet we're seeing a huge amount of flexibility now with the ability for people to communicate, to share information, to say, you know, this is happening then, there's a virtual town hall going on, there's, you know, X number of, of other opportunities, sign a petition, right? These things that up until now we had to be doing uh, prior to the advent of social media, I should say, uh, you know, doing through in-person methods or through the mail, you know, any number of other ways that television that we as a younger generation really can't fathom anymore because it is so immediate now. The immediacy of information is really a, a beautiful tool. And I think that's really the first jumping off point, I think, for people to 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 start that reckoning process, to start that awakening and seeing, um, you know, this, that the realities are here. My friends are sharing it, and now I can share it. And and now, what do I do? Here, here are resources. The, these are tools that um, you know my friends are pointing me to, or that I can look up online, do a quick little Google search, find the you know Instagram, Facebook handle for this particular organization that's doing work, signing up for an email thread. You know, it's 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 truly incredible. I think it's become so normalized that we don't think about it much, and we don't really reflect on it objectively, but. When you, when you really do think about it, it's incredible. There's really, I mean, especially I think around, among people, at least that I surround myself with, it's, it's infectious almost to the point where it's, it's cool to be an upstander in some ways. And it's really exciting. It's incredible. It's, it's in, so inspiring. And I, you know, as a 29-year-old, I'm saying this, but young people are just incredible in, in the, the galvanization that um, has has occurred i mean especially i think in the last five ten years whether it's racial justice or climate justice or environmental justice you know it's it's all intersecting but the 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 conversations the narratives the amount of education that people have you know now at the palm of their hands is it's incredible and i think that's that's really uh, among other things i think a, a really powerful first step for people to take before they go out you know and attend a rally or before they take take a little bit more serious action in you know writing to their senators taking that time or joining the board of an organization or volunteering right things that take a little bit more energy and time or have those very uncomfortable conversations i think first and foremost education <laughs> you've just used a word too that we referenced in part in the recognition of your identities and they intersect mm-hmm they come to be you. Yes, yeah. In working with a broader community, whether folks choose to be an ally or an activist, whether they choose to be an upstander, mm-hmm. how do we respond when they say, yeah, but that's not my story? Mm-hmm. They say, oh, that's interesting. I don't relate. Right, right. That's, again, really, really wonderful question. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I think it's it's incredibly invaluable for us in these times and, and just more broadly speaking to really step out of our bubble and out of our experience. And that takes a lot of active work. That's not something that comes innately to us as people. You know, I think humans, right, from what I've read in my own readings, you know, humans evolved in 
in small groups of about 50 people, right, for a very long time in our history. And we related to those that were generally kin and generally looked like us, generally, you know, spoke like us, spoke the same language. It's inherent to our our DNA to to at least on the on the surface identify with those that have very similar mm-hmm. backgrounds to us, similar life experiences. And we're in 2020. Our, you know, humanity has stepped forth significantly. Um, there's such now this mixing, of course, and especially in a country like America, of of different identities, of different marginalizations, of different expressions of self that warrant, you know, if, if we're going to work as a society in a way that is espousing diversity and is built on the power of diversity, right? Because diversity is shown again, kind of going back to the roots of it all um, as humanity and as, as, as animals in biology, you know, diversity is shown to be a, a strong predictor of health and of thriving. And whether it's in an individual genetically or whether it's in a culture and a society, and we're seeing this dialogue come up, come up more and more as racial equity becomes something that we're talking about, diversity really does bring forth greater outcomes um, in business, in, in arts. You know, you see in cities that have a great number of different perspectives and different voices, that really does bring forth something beautiful and it advances a lot of, um, you know, developments, technological developments in, in ways that wouldn't have been the case if we had been more... Um, homogeneous in our in our in our makeup homogeneous versus heterogeneous heterogeneous being something that's more diverse and as someone who represents hetero heterogeneity uh, is the term um you know i think again for me it's been normal to be in that setting but or in, in that life but for those that don't haven't had that experience mm-hmm. or don't typically interface with people of different backgrounds of different identities different um, ways of presenting you know, it can be it can be a very jarring experience again because we don't have that innate perhaps ability or something that we're not typically educated on. Um, you know, our education system is is flawed in many ways. Um, one of them, I think, being how how it is that we talk about difference, how it is that we confront difference, um, and that's why I think the Watson Center is so valuable. Among other things, is that we're really starting that conversation and starting that on the individual level, and that's really how it has to be. But you know, I think it does, it does take that extra effort. It does take that slight reckoning and awakening. But when that does happen, I think what comes in tandem is once you realize that, you know, difference is inherent to, to the, the bigger picture, that humanity is very diverse, incredibly diverse. In fact, we only see a small slice of it here in Idaho and Boise, and certainly even in our own country. But, you know, it's, it really does take that that's that stepping back and saying you know what even this if even if this isn't my experience even if this isn't my my shared identity zuh, you know multiple identities because mm-hmm. we all have multiple identities mm-hmm. it's not that you're just white it's that you have a gender you have a sexual orientation you have a body you have a mind <laughs> mm-hmm. you've got all these other you know experiences traumas that will very strongly inform who you are and even if the person who you're interfacing with doesn't on the outside appear to have similarity with you. you you're human. You have 99.9% of the same genetic DNA and makeup and shared history. That alone should warrant, you know, all of us to kind of say, you know what? Yes, based on that fact, based on this education that I've now acquired through any number of means, hopefully this podcast perhaps, you know, it's 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 time for me to to work beyond just my my initial kind of gut reaction to say I don't I can't relate to that you know that's not my experience and say 
you know what? Let me listen. Let me, let me build my empathy. Let me build my skills and trying to understand what it's like to be of this identity. And through that, you know, relate in some way because we all have aspects that are similar. And then through that compassion and, and then through that equity, it's, it's all built through that. But it really, again, takes that initial step of stepping back and saying, I can empathize with everyone, no matter who it is, as long as I just have that dialogue, as long as I listen, try to create. As I'm listening with you, right now we are in development of a new center program mm. that we will pair with our discussion of the spiral of injustice. We're now developing the spiral of justice. Mm. And so much of what I'm seeing as that model is evolving is just what you've described. That we start with awareness. It is that awakening moment. Then there is that education. And then there is that sense, now, where am I going to go? And it is built on compassion. Mm -hmm. It is built on empathy, a shared understanding that if the end goal is a free and just society, then to see myself as a part of that and the role that I will play. Mm -hmm. The, as you were talking, I was thinking back to the quote etched into the stone of the Idaho and Frank Human Rights Memorial where Billie Jean King just said, we got to get over the differences. Mm. Get over them. We celebrate them. We recognize mm. them. You know, uh, you'll see or hear reference where people say, well, I don't see color. Right. Yeah. That's not true. <laughs> we see color. And that's okay. Right. We should see color. Absolutely. But it's not a point of difference that cause conflict. It's a point of celebration. Celebrate your color celebrate my celebrate the fact that we're part of the human family exactly it is that shared identity mm -hmm. what do you hope that your actions as an upstander model for others mm. there's so many certainly first and foremost as a trans person I don't have a lot of role models uh, and regardless of one's gender identity, I think it's very important to see empowered people of identities that you typically don't see at the forefront. And it's not to say that there aren't trans people out there, but in Idaho in particular, as an example, I don't see many. I can name a few, but I can count them on the palms of my hand. and. And then on top of that, to have a trans person of color out in the forefront doing these things that aren't even about trans rights, even aren't about racial justice. But, um, you know, for instance, climate justice, which is a huge passion of mine, seeing that despite, you know, despite your identities, despite what you've undergone and perhaps would make logically the most sense for someone to be out there in the field for, right, saying I'm fighting for my specific community because this is happening now. 100% warranted. And there's something I think very powerful to be said about despite everything else that you hold in terms of right your 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 uh, your oppression, what you've undergone as a person, that your communities that you represent directly through inherently what you what you hold in your identities, you can still speak up for others that aren't like that. And that's that's really what I think I not even necessarily out of my own volition or consciously am doing, but just more in in my actions and in how I 
act as an upstander and saying, you know, I will be an ally. I will be here for those that have experienced pain, despite the fact that I haven't had that experience or I don't experience the amount of, um, you know, for instance, economic injustice mm-hmm. or uh, environmental injustice, the way that we see abroad. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time abroad growing up and that was also hugely informative to how I operate now in, in holding that more holistic perspective and saying, you know, America is what it is. Idaho is what it is. But until you leave, until you have those experiences and that right education mm-hmm. around the realities of what it means to be making a dollar or two a day or to, you know, confront sea level rise and have your home inundated with water. Not that I've personally witnessed this, yeah. but when you really right again kind of like I was saying you step out of your bubble and see that there are so many other iterations of human existence of of suffering mm-hmm. you really come to see yeah it, it, it does take that extra level and step to say this doesn't directly ha- pertain to me this doesn't pertain to even my local community but it's going to take all of us to speak up and especially something like the climate crisis again kind of tying back to my my more recent activist work it really does take a conscious effort to, to pull yourself back and say, this is a global issue. This is the same with racial equity and everything else. It's, it's not just us. When we fight here locally, we're fighting for everyone. Uh, even if we don't see the direct results, even if it's not tangible, and certainly even if we're not meeting the people that we're benefiting in some way, shape or form, that, that imagining that active saying, I can be someone for others, even if I don't right necessarily, um, see the fruits of my labor immediately or in front of my eyes. We do have to imagine a world and, and be creative in that. And yeah, I, I, I really try to embody that in my activism and, and just in who I am and saying, yeah, it's not even just about trans rights or exclusively about racial issues or about the environment, but it's it's everything together. <laughs> I so appreciate that because when we talk in the terms of the ACT, the acronym we use as part of the Upstander programming, the T is teach. It's mm-hmm. teach by example of how you lead your life. That how dare I call myself an upstander if no one ever witnesses right. me as such. You know, I've often said even about our community, how dare we call ourselves a compassionate community mm-hmm. if folks come to town don't witness that. Right. You know, it's one thing to put it on a slogan. It's another thing if we live it. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate what you've said because it's not only the being an upstander to the issues that are near and dear to me because they are who I am, right? but it's being an upstander for those issues that are near and dear to all of us because mm-hmm. we share, as President Kennedy had once said, we all breathe the same air, we all drink the same water. Right. It is this shared experience and what do we have invested in one another? Mm-hmm. And that shared experience. Exactly. The, the recognition that, as we're going to repeat often this season, that upstanders don't all have to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's that each chooses to do something. Right. And determining how that journey starts and where it takes us. Mm-hmm. What gives you hope? You've made reference to a younger generation, a new generation of upstanders, a new movement. I like to think in terms that what we're seeing in the recognition 
from George Floyd's murder. That was a moment, but it speaks to a much longer history. Right, right. Didn't It was not a murder out of context. Mm -hmm. What gives you hope in the movement beyond the movement? Mm. Yeah. Uh, to touch on something you had mentioned earlier, just that, you know, it, it, it takes all of us to do something. And I always like to clarify that we're all we're all doing the best we can. I think a lot of us in especially in activist spheres or you know as we're trying to inch closer towards joining the the movements of sorts there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of expectation around you either do this much or you have to do these things or you're not valid. And that's that's not good for a variety of reasons. It's not sustainable. It can lead to burnout uh, among those that are out in the forefront, being upstanders. And it's also not inviting for those that are considering joining and are really overwhelmed by, well, I, apparently I have to dedicate all these hours and do these things. And it really doesn't have to be that complicated. It really does start with, right, single conversations, single books that we read, articles, right, podcasts, anything that we can do within our means, within the amount of time that we have. And I think if we're going to make the change that we want to see, we have to be inviting to everyone to whatever degree they're allowed to give. And, you know, you think about parents, I think about people with disabilities, um, you know, those that don't have the, the ability, the sheer ability or the time or the energy, those suffering from mental illness, you know, who, who perhaps want to be there for us and help, but aren't able to be recognized or, you know, whose work isn't, out at the forefront, you know, out in the trenches, mm -hmm. shouting with their signs. Sure, that's incredibly important, but we really do need to recognize and welcome all all abilities and that we are, again, doing the best that we can within our means. And I think as long as we do that, that's, what's, that's what matters and, and recognizing that. Um, but then, to, yes, to touch back to your question, you know, I think what, what really does give me hope in seeing what's been happening this, this latest iteration with Black Lives Matter and obviously what the pandemic is bringing up, it's incredible that this isn't just about a virus. This is about the, the sheer right structural injustices that have led to the point now where we're seeing brown and black people dying at well over twice the rate of white people, for instance, in America, or the, right, the fact that now people are just left and right losing their jobs, seen as non-essential, now don't have insurance, don't have any sort of supporting from the government as the wealthiest country in the nation. That is inexcusable. And it seems it's such a daunting thing, right? To have to then say, what are we going to do about this? We and it really has to take us voting in people of power. Thankfully we're a democracy. We're not uh we're not an oligarchy. We're not, you know, we're not China, for instance. It's we're not a communist nation. We have the ability to bring forth power. Certainly there's a lot of corruption within our democracy, but we're still we have the means to do that. And again, kind of, yeah, what I was saying, the younger generation truly through social media and through just the dialogues that we're seeing, I thought my generation was very forward thinking in a lot of ways, but you know, when I was growing up, I knew very few queer people. I knew there were very few queer icons, trans icons on television, certainly even people of color in media and advertising. And now you're seeing left and right. It's like the, the, the reckoning, right, this kind of awakening that we're talking about is happening at this mass scale to the point now where those in power are seeing, you know, if we're going to tailor our world to meet the 
the demands and the desires of these young people, we have to be supporting pride or we have to be including people of color in our media or, you know, having active discussions around even things like pronouns. It's been really interesting being in spaces now where everyone says, you know, name and pronouns. That was not a thing five, 10 years ago. And again, it's, it's interesting to kind of see how that percolated in the kind of the processes and that's a whole nother dialogue and I think there's experts doing research in that but it fascinates me to kind of see that it really did take most likely I mean in fact yes definitely active people saying you know this is this is aberrant this is not normal for what our world currently is but we're gonna we're gonna be at at the front of this dialogue and say we need to talk about this even if it's uncomfortable and we're going to introduce this new thing that maybe not what you're used to, but this is in our opinion, collectively as right, perhaps more woken generation, what needs to happen if we're going to be having these active discussions around inclusion, equity, right? Justice. And yeah, it's just, it's incredible. The amount of, I mean, I myself am a benefactor of this amount of education, but it's only been in the last few years that I've had that. And now just the momentum is so incredible and like i was mentioning earlier it's it's almost seems like it's cool now among young people to be activists to be woke right quote unquote and woke has its own problematic um connotations within the term but you know i think that's about as good as we can get right now but really right people engaging in this active questioning and reckoning and saying you know despite my being a white cis girl the head girl or maybe i'm bisexual whatever you know, in a small town, I now know that there are brown and black people, queer and trans people, black and brown trans people, queer people who are really suffering and being killed for their identities. This isn't okay. You know, I, even if I don't see anyone in my small town in Kansas, I'm going to still talk about it. I'm going to spread the information out. And, you know, I think, yeah, the, the power of the internet can't be understated in how this is really yeah, bringing forth an awakening. And, as a Buddhist, there's a lot of talk um, within the literature that I read and the media that I consume around this kind of collective awakening is the term, but that collective consciousness. Something is happening in the next, you know, kind of iteration of human evolution. And we see that more and more as as we urbanize, as we develop as a species all throughout the world, there really is something to be said about how much collectively yeah again around the world there is this kind of new new sense of purpose and saying yeah if we're going to survive the climate crisis if we're going to get through these next few decades that are very unknown and a lot of things are spiraling out of control it feels and right technology and privacy and data and all these things we really have to hold people in power accountable we really have to hold especially yeah those that have benefited from colonialization to be accountable and and to really then talk about how is it that we heal how is it that we kind of engage in this new way of thinking and and including many different voices and um if i can add very quickly i'm starting social work school in the fall and in my practice as i kind of think about what i want to do i'm i'm having a lot of dialogues with different friends who are in very different fields and really kind of thinking about how it is that all of us are, you know, trying to create a new paradigm, um, not only just within the healing community and, you know, yogics, uh, yoga healers and, and certainly therapists and social workers, but there's all these new intersections that we're seeing in, in the world and that even like music, for instance, right? It's not just pop and rock and R&B and there's all this new mm-hmm. mixture, all this new atomixture. And 
the same within social work and within counseling, for instance, I'm really looking at nature-based therapy, looking at all the different ways that we can be incorporating, um, you know, new paradigms to heal trauma in a way that isn't just about talking and just sitting in a stale room. How, did, how is it that we incorporate other medicines, plant medicines, for instance, um, as, as a way to bring about that? And I think that really is the result of us coming together, right? Thinking outside the box, having dialogue, engaging, listening, and then saying, yeah, you know what, this, this, this seems better and more fit for what the world is now in 2020 than when this was developed, maybe in the 50s or 60s or 70s. And we can't stay in these old systems anymore. They have to change. And the young generation saying no more. <laughs> Joni, thank you so much. We recognize own, not only the power of your words. While you were talking, it made me think of another quote etched into the stone of the memorial when Gandhi asked us to be the change we want to see in the world. Mm-hmm. Setting the stage for season two of the Voices of Idaho, that will be our question. How can I be the change I want to see? Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dan and Adam. Really appreciate it. Can we walk this road together? I can't travel it alone. Hey everyone, if you're a musician and you'd like to submit a song related to our theme of being an upstander to possibly be played on the podcast, shoot us an email at info at wasmuscenter.org. Great, thanks. See you next week. Oh uh-huh.